less than two hours to airtime. What's up? Well, you know darn well what's up. It's these last-minute changes. Now, why do we have to go through this every week, huh? Now, why should this week be different from every other one? Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. Welcome once again, everybody, to the IMMP podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and I've made him watch movies. Yes, movies about other media. This time around, I made him watch a movie called The Night That Panicked America. And then I also made him watch a movie called The Night That Panicked America. Because this is not just one movie, I realized, on watching this again with you. No, it's this is not. several movies mashed together. It is several movies mashed together, and they're mashed together with a glue I'm not sure we've run into before. How much historical have we ever done in our podcast so far? I I don't know. Because in not much. S- because in some ways... Wait, wait, crawl. <laughs> historical? Am I, am I wrong about that? No? No. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> If I had horses, I thought maybe it was historical. Got a point. Because in some ways, to talk about either The Night That Panicked America or The Night That Panicked America, we have to talk about the thing it's talking about, which is The War of the Worlds. But not just the book The War of the Worlds, but the radio presentation in 1938. So this is where I kind of, in our last episode, wound up talking about about our theme of media for this because in our previous episode we wound up talking about a show that was all about the news and horror and ended with the idea that it could be continued in a different form kind of this this modern continuation of the concept of radio that you you're you're joining us here now on but I wanted to set that baseline because this one winds up talking about a wide swath of those media pieces we touched on last time and kind of talks about all of them in a group. And that's exciting here. This one's a dense episode, people. Strap in. So this is The Night That Panicked America. It was a TV movie from 1975. And it's, as you're saying, Ian, it's about the 1938 broadcast of the radio adaptation of The War of the Worlds by Orson Welles in the Mercury Radio Theater. And that's why we we chose it for uh, the second of our, our October episodes this year, is that if the original broadcast, War of the Worlds, was on October 30th in 1938. And the TV movie was originally on October 31st, 1975. And I know that they were, when I was growing up, at least, there were a lot of radio stations that would replay the Orson Welles War of the Worlds on the 30th or the 31st of October. And then a lot of TV stations that would show this TV movie 
on the 30th or the 31st of October. So it became a very seasonal tradition in that way. So we're joining in by discussing it now. <laughs> this was this is an interesting one because there's there's a lot of setup to begin with because the the entire story of this movie takes place before the broadcast itself actually. And it kind of shows you that setup. Well, yeah, the the first act does. Kind of the setup is before the broadcast. Mhm. And that's I think important to get this thing going because it frames the entirety of the events not during just what happened but on either end of it and that it uses that context very well and the two movies that i'm talking about this really uh, uh, being one of them is the production of the radio play where we see the network people and orson wells and the writer and all the performers getting ready to do this and the sound engineers getting ready to do this and then actually presenting the broadcast. And the other movie are people all over America listening to the broadcast and their reaction to this, because famously, some people thought that this broadcast about an alien invasion was really a news report about an alien invasion, and they had the predictable, weird, panicked, extreme reactions to that news. And we can talk at some point a little bit about how accurate that depiction of the reaction is. There's uh, some controversy around that now, but it does make for two very, very different stories. Absolutely. It, the, the radio production story is, I found it very fascinating. It's one of those things where I've, I found that part interesting and they give a, they do a great job of showing this, this dive, this group of people, each with a job to do, taking their part and making this happen, and being relatively unaware of what they're doing to the world, this power that they are projecting into their their world, and then on the other side, it is the box, this box that just says things, and all of the people's responses to it, and there's that disconnect between those two stories despite the fact that one is driving the other the entire way. Oh, there's a certain way in which this might have more power now than it did when this movie was made. Exactly. Hmm, I like that. But the, the, the first movie starts up, but we see them trying to get ready for this production, and there's issues of Orson being a bit of a... a character who shows up late, like a, not late, but shows up a little... Like, I'm here now. He's a guy with presence. Paul Shinar, as Orson Welles, uh, does a terrific job in this because he just commands whatever room he's in. And uh, the other actors sell that really well, too, looking to him. I mean, he's the director of this whole thing. But he, he is somebody who is creatively in control at all times. And it's that part of this movie, the watching them make this radio play... That's the only part of this movie I remembered. Oh, really? I saw this a few times when I was a kid, starting out when I was, what, nine years old, when it was first on. I saw it several years following that. And I didn't remember any of the other stuff, but I remembered everything about the behind the scenes of the radio production, and I remember being absolutely captivated by that and fascinated by that. Mm -hmm. This was probably the first depiction I ever saw that these stories and media and this stuff that I enjoy, there are people 
making decisions and creating it. And how cool is that to know? And we watch as they run into early challenges, moving the location of a, of a narrative point because of a, a change requested by the network kind of last minute. And we watch as the Foley team is nervous about us an effect not working right, but they're finding a solution that they're not quite happy with. And this, there's this whole, you know, production and flow. There's something very Sorkin-y. We go oh, back to him, like, very, very much so. This is fun. There's walk and talks. This is, this is my sort of jam. Yeah, I think this probably teed me up to enjoy a lot of Aaron Sorkin. And you know, three out of his four TV shows have been about making TV shows. Mm-hmm. So this this gets you rolling because you get invested in this and then when they move to the other story we see all these different people in these different scenarios listening to this narrative come across and we see as they we 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 as the the viewer get to watch the production on one side continue going continue rolling and hit all their beats all the times they say who they are all the times what they're doing to start and what they're and go into what they're doing. And we see how that little bit gets missed in all the other narrative points in the other, in the other film, we get to watch as a party. hears the music and thinks it's just a music channel to put on in the background during their event. We watch as a family who's already fighting with each other, turn on and off the radio at different points and only catch glimpses we we see as a, a group flipping through cha- th- flipping across the dial. I I almost say flipping through channels that tells different era. <laughs> as they as they scan through the dial to find something, settle on this as uh, music in the background or something in the background because they hear something that sounds like a news report, and we get to see how all of these other people get hooked into the what they think is going on, but we know where the other production actually is and how that's rolling. And that gives you as the audience this interesting perspective. Yeah, that is a terrific dynamic. And there are points where you just want to like shout at the people you're seeing on the TV. It's a radio play. What's the matter with you? But you know, in con- they had no reason to know that. And, you know, nobody knows that whether or not Martians can invade in 1938. It's, it's as plausible as anything else. Mm-hmm. And one thing I think the movie does a pretty good job of is Putting this in the historical context, we're talking about, you know, late 1938. There's a horrible war already started in Europe, and people wondering, is, is America going to get brought into this? And different people are having different reactions. We see the, the farm kid who's going to go to Canada and enlist so he can fight in this war because he knows it's important, and America's not doing anything about it yet, and his father is totally against that. There's the wealthy industrialists in America who are kind of sympathizing with uh, with the Nazis and with the fascists of, you know, they've got to keep people in line and keep industry moving okay. Well, it's, we shouldn't get involved in, in any of that stuff in Europe. And then we've got the people for whom this is just, the world's already falling apart and this is just the last straw. So it's, it's, it's interesting in that regard. I don't know if that part of this movie overall is nearly as successful as watching the radio play be made. It's not quite as successful. It does a great job of synchronizing the tension across them, though, because the the moment that made this for me in that sense was the air quotes here opening of the capsule 
<laughs> because we watched in the beginning as the Foley artists got nervous and we watch as they're not certain that this sound effect is going to work and they do the thing and we're seeing their strain and their, their, this rising action on their end narratively of seeing this succeed. And we watch this falling action on the other story as this sound that none of them know what the origin is coming across their radios makes this real for them. They tense up, they tighten up. We watch the horror and the color drain from their faces as it becomes the reality they're dealing with in that moment over the radio. And so we, as this omniscient viewer, get to watch triumph on one side become terror on the other. And that is where this is an effective film in that sense. That is really well put because you're right. This this was instilling, at least as depicted here, this was really instilling genuine terror on people's part because they believe they're listening to a news broadcast. And we're seeing this tension between the, the, the challenge of creating art and then the consequences of this art, especially if people don't understand what it is they're, they're encountering. And, you know, thinking about it in that context, I have a little more patience for the other half of the movie, which is about people listening to the radio play. And the other half of the movie kind of interweaves these separate narratives of a family who goes from not uh, from, from breaking apart to a very scary depth of despair. But I can tell if they wanted to be hopeful at the end there with how this came out for them. Mm, I, I I don't know. That got that got that that one works the least. That gets extremely dark. Extremely dark. And this is kind of bringing up early to be able to be a warning of that. That, and, that one gets very dark. And we don't have to go into to detail here in the podcast, but yeah, that that is one of their vignettes that gets very dark. And you wonder: is this this is a family breaking apart? Is this shared trauma of this news that they're getting going to bring them together? No, no. It's just going to make things worse mm-hmm. in, in rather stark and unpleasant ways we see the industrialists go from a sense of complete security to confusion to panic but the but the people who are working for them who checked in as what's going on and learned some stuff and were a little more (laughs) tricky that's the one part that works in as comedy to some extent yeah because you've got the maid and the butler who know what this is on the radio and all the rich people at this party who think is real. Mm-hmm. That's kind of fun. That is kind of fun. It ends with, that, that one has a fun ending. And we have the, the, the son and the father who are on different sides of opinion as to what will and need to be done to deal with the problems of the world. And the dad gets wrapped up in this in one way, and the son figures things out and gets wrapped up in a different and in the end they kind of come to a consensus after almost going awry (laughs) themselves they wind up causing some mild property damage but obtain understanding through it i guess yeah that's one of those vignettes that it could have turned out much worse and somehow it resolved something for these people that had a certain satisfaction to it as well Mm -hmm. but all of this is interwoven with what's going on and we still watch as the, the on the other side, the production 
is rolling. Things are successful. It's this, there's this triumphant presentation. They have their shifts and their changes, but we watch as the news of what's going on kind of comes in. And this fight between, are we really good at this or is this a horrible problem? And, and yeah, they start adding disclaimers and things like that, but by then it's too late. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, that's another layer of the whole production story is responding to in trying to respond in real time to what is happening as a result of their production. This, this attempt at course correction that doesn't succeed quite right, but we watch as the, the telephone lines for the radio station start getting busier and busier. And by the end, these ladies are dealing with blinding amounts of lights coming off of these switchboards as they try to respond and tell people, no, it's just a radio play. We're okay. There's no issues. Yeah. We watch as reporters start piling in to figure out, to, to hear about what's going on. And the timing of when they can announce stuff doesn't line up with when they need to. And there's this, this tension of, this entire production succeeding, but being precarious in ways. Yeah, there's certain, a certain tightrope act kind of feel to it. And that, again, is where Paul Shinar, as, um, as Orson Welles, does such a great job because he's on this tightrope and he's loving it because he feels in control of all the stuff around him. And that's what's fun to see, this big studio full of people with all these different multiple roles, and we're watching this radio broadcast that is simulating a totally different kind of radio broadcast that is now interrupted by a third different kind of radio broadcast. And the way that they're creating these different realities within their show, it's just so fascinating and and satisfying to watch, to see how it all fits together. And also to see how for these actors and Foley artists and others, this is a job and it's a craft and it's something they're enjoying doing, but you know, they're not thinking much farther beyond getting this play done as well as they can. And to see the, the details of the way they've got characters playing multiple roles and they've got this, they've got this little band, this small orchestra playing all the dance music that's in the dance music broadcast that then gets interrupted by the news broadcast of the alien invasion and then you know when they're no longer playing the dance music they're the ones in the background making hubbub noises so it seems like there's a crowd somewhere and they did some really terrific bits in the the in the war of the worlds broadcast where you'd have the news reporter reporting on some dramatic thing that's happening and then get cut off and Wells was willing to use these lengths of silence that just put you on the edge of your seat because you were just listening to a news reporter and something has happened and no one is there to tell you what has happened. And meanwhile, then they go, something tragic has happened to a reporter. And you see the guy who was playing the reporter who supposedly died. He's in his chair in the studio doing a crossword puzzle until the next character that he has to do a voice work shows up. So I just love that inter- interweaving the craft of making the, the radio show with how dramatic the show it was turned out to be. This is a wonderful production about production in that sense. And th- that, that description of seeing the guy just saying they're doing his crossword, it's seeing 
him play a reporter one moment and one set of people in this other narrative perk up hearing about hearing from the reporter but then he'll go sit down and he'll come back later and he's suddenly this army general and a different set of people in that other narrative perk up even though it's the same guy talking puts on a slightly different voice and suddenly everyone's listening to him differently because he's a different person because the moment it's coming out of that radio it's not the same man it's a different part of this other narrative being brought to them and that is powerful because it means we see the the strength of the production side which we're getting invested in watching happen and we're seeing the we're seeing the magic on the other side of the radio because it's able to convince the other people and that's fun and that pu- push and pull and there's something about this that makes me want to take it that one step further. I want some kind of a making of about the making of this TV show, this TV movie. Yeah. Because it must have been interesting to to research how this radio play was produced and recreate that. And it, it they've they they've mapped it pretty well to the various photographs I've seen of the studio where they produced this radio show. And um, and researching the character of Orson Welles and the other characters, the the writer and the uh, the network people, who I believe were based on on real people here. And I'd love to know the process of how they put t- that together. To what extent were they trying to make their depiction of the broadcast historically accurate? To what extent were they changing things to make it visually interesting and narratively interesting to watch? as a 1975 TV movie. So there's, because we're watching a movie, there's always that next layer. And in some ways that makes you wonder, because this is all a story about the impact a piece of media had. But this is a piece of media, and what impact is that having? And now we're making a piece of media talking about the impact that had on us, and oh my goodness, my head's spinning. (laughs) And being a a 70s uh, TV movie, it's full of actors that you've seen in other things. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tom Bosley is, plays like the network. I don't think he's the lawyer. He's like their standards and practices kind of guy who's telling the writers and telling Wells what they can and cannot do and insisting that they brought, put in this disclaimer at the station break. And yeah, he showed up in the last Kolshak that we watched. Oh, yeah, he as did. As the manager of the, uh, the underground archive place. And also, he was the the dad in Happy Days, which I don't think we've talked about yet. No, we have not. And we've got a young John Ritter playing the farm kid who wants to go to war as World War II is starting. And we've got um, uh, Michael Constantine as his father, Eileen Brennan and uh, and Vic Morrow. Meredith Baxter as the, the daughter of the Protestant minister who is forbidding her to marry her Catholic boyfriend. And then the minister... Kind of goes crazy when he hears this radio broadcast. And yeah. There were some shots in that vignette where like he runs into his church and all this. There were some shots that reminded me, framing and color-wise, of shots from the move the classic like 50s movie adaptation of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. I don't oh. know if that's just me being primed to recognize that, or if the director of this TV movie kind of snuck that in as a little hat tip. Is shot in a church with the lighting through the stained glass in a certain way. Oh, that might have been a reference then. And that's a movie we're going to have to watch at some point, I think. I'm excited to see that. You know, speaking of which, have you ever heard 
the a recording of the radio broadcast? I actually have not. Oh, I have never have actually to- heard the radio broadcast. That's the thing. Backing up here a little, I have heard about the radio broadcast over and over, and I have been interested in it, and I've read about it, but I've never heard the radio broadcast itself. And that is interesting, because I'm coming to it not knowing how that narrative went in that sense, and then this is my exposure to it, is in this sort of medium. That's interesting. Uh, that is because I had heard the radio broadcast at this point because, again, it was something that was on your know, radio stations in the New York area would around Halloween. They would broadcast that. And I've listened to it with my dad once. And uh, at this point, would you be interested in oh, listening? Oh, absolutely. Because that's uh, maybe we should do that. We should listen to that a recording of the the original HG, um, not HG, yeah, uh, Orson Welles. I, I'm not H. sure. Orson Welles. I'm not sure if somewhere during this podcast already I've said H.G. Wells when I meant Orson Welles. Curse them for having such similar names. But yeah, it was Orson Welles creating the, the radio show. Wells, Wells, um, Wells. Yeah, we should listen to the a recording of the original uh, Orson Welles uh, radio play. Maybe we'll do that. If we do, we will talk about that and we'll put that uh, on, on our Patreon as a bonus for. Uh, for patrons of the show. That would be an excellent bonus episode yeah. for us to do. But definitely, like, not having heard that directly before, I'm I'm on my, the edge of my seat about how they're doing this presentation as well. Oh, And I'm getting wrapped up with the people because I'm not sure how they're going to splice in, and I'm not prepared for that side. So you were, were finding out how this radio presentation developed at the same time our characters in the movie were finding out even though you knew that it was just a radio play you didn't know what was coming next for the people listening to it to either misconstrue or to explain it all exactly oh that's a dynamic i hadn't really thought about i like that but that was interesting because in many ways that meant i related to some of the people outside but i also know that they are not the historically accurate ones. Because how much the actual panic happened is a whole other question. Yeah, I don't know that any of the depictions of people listening to the show were based specifically upon reported incidents. I think they were put together and created to represent the kind of things that were reported in the aftermath of this broadcast. And that's the thing, the aftermath of the broadcast, there was a lot more sensationalization of the response. Now, for for decades, decades and decades and decades, it was totally accepted and understood and believed that the reaction across the nation was really, really extreme among millions of people, to the point where some people were on the verge of suicide, if not beyond because they believed they were about to be killed horribly by Martians. And there was a lot of controversy following that, and a lot of criticism of Orson Welles and of the network for for presenting a show that could be uh, mistaken for news in that way. And Orson Welles then was, was very apologetic and never intended to cause panic, and terribly sorry for this. If you also, but at the same time, though, if you want to see some of the most 
Huzzah, I'm in the limelight pictures yeah. Orson Welles ever taken. Grab some of the ones from the interviews post this event. He is, he's got the almost cape billowing in the wind yeah. kind of effect going on at times. And, and I think it was Slate that looked into this uh, a year or two ago and really raised some, I think, valid questions about how extreme was the actual nationwide reaction to this radio broadcast. Some people did misconstrue it and, and panicked. But was it the widespread people trying to flee the cities that we have been given to understand and that's depicted in this TV show? Or was there some of this kind of reaction? And Orson Welles being very happy to make use of whatever publicity he can promotes that idea that his radio play was so powerful that it threw people into a panic and it disrupted the whole nation and got and allowed him to apologize. Well, I am so terribly sorry. I had no idea that I had such power. And it's this is not to dismiss the fact that it did shake a bunch of people who were worried about the tensions of World War II that were rising, and that there was there was something to it's it didn't have no impact, but it's hard to get a clear idea of how much of that impact is. The narrative after about the narrative. Absolutely. But I, I, I definitely think Orson Welles milked some of that for himself in this sense. Right. And in that way, as you're saying the narrative of, of the narrative, I think you're exactly right that the the story about the reaction to this broadcast is a story that we have told ourselves and one another for, for generations. And it gets bigger, it gets stronger, it gets more ingrained in our culture that uh it's it's accepted and maybe it is not literally true maybe like a lot of stories that story itself also has value that we can learn from even if it isn't literally true so that we 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 we, it's a story about the power of media and that's something that we should pay attention to absolutely so this kind of leads into we described this as the two movies both named to the night that panicked america one of which is the is the movie about the production and the other one's really a movie about the parable this becomes this becomes this this story with a message to it especially the way it ends itself it kind of ties itself up with a a message at the end about the concept of how much this panicked them and what they took as real from this and what they could take as uh, like if they had this reaction to the fake story are they ready for what was going on? And were they keeping their ears out for when things actually happened? Yeah, the movie is very, um, that's kind of, it's, it's framing is to put it in context to the beginning of the war. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an interesting way to take this because it definitely turns it into this story with a message in the end in a way I didn't expect a vaguely a a, a partially or or mostly historically presented thing to try to do in that way it gives this uh entire cohesive film as a a pair grouped into one an intriguing ending uh, that i was very fascinated to see and changed how i thought about the entire film afterwards so and though it it went right past me of course when i was a nine-year-old i find myself wondering now to what extent that was done very thoughtfully by the creators of this TV movie, given the fact that uh, the U.S. had gotten out of Vietnam just a year before. Mm -hmm. And the role of 
media in general and news media in particular in the course of that war and and the end of, of U.S. involvement in it. That's also uh, uh, some of the context for this TV movie in the same way that the beginning of World War II was the context for the original uh, Orson Welles broadcast. Absolutely. So, I mean, I... I, I this whole thing is such a dense narrative, not in that sense, because talking about it inevitably winds up talking about how it's talked about. And that's a weird thing, you know, overall. I mean, there, there's, there's an entire depth to, to discuss about the original environment in which War of the Worlds was written. Yeah. Let, I- let alone the time frame that then this production was was done and that production changed things about war of the worlds in order to fit when it was and there have been productions of war of the worlds since that changed when in response to what was going on yeah we're gonna have to watch that 50s movie at some point because that's when i saw a lot as a kid mm-hmm. so those are all interesting and then there's the discussion of the adaptation <laughs> and the response to the adaptation and the adaptation of the response and the adaptation. And that's it. It's, it, it this is a matryoshka of narrative that we're <laughs> then trying to pack into a podcast. So. Yeah. And as you were saying earlier, I think, um, th- I think this is the first docudrama that we've watched. The first thing that was based on a, uh, um, on actual events. And that definitely raises a lot of questions that straightforward storytelling, fictional storytelling, like most of what we talk about, uh, just doesn't raise. Because it's going to have to change our ending questions in ways because the ending questions imply a narrative control of the events that they don't always get. Huh. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about how our usual questions would apply to a docudrama in that way. But, um, well, let's try them out and see if they fit. Yeah, we're going to have to try them out at this point. Well, our first one, easy enough. For a movie, it's screen or no screen. I'm going to say screen, but it's with an odd see my next answer caveat about whether you have to. Yeah, I, I would say screen, but screen at least one of the movies that this movie is. Mm-hmm. I know I'm going to watch this again probably within the next week or two. But I'm just going to watch the parts about producing the radio play. I don't need to see the little vignettes about people panicking again, maybe ever. But I just love, I'm absolutely captivated by the scenes of Orson Welles and the production of this radio drama. I would love to see someone do an edit of this and give us a multi-cam kind of layout. If Mm. they can synchronize, if they can move where each piece is. So instead of one screen that's flipping across, we see the multiple screens. Oh, the, could, all the people listening while we also see yeah. the people producing it. Oh, that I like that. Fun. That, that could, could be fun. That could be an interesting thing. I like that. But so then, yeah, I, I say screen uh, at least the the production parts, maybe the whole thing at least once. Oh yeah. Uh, it's definitely it's definitely the production side parts especially. And we we haven't gotten into a lot of it because kind of seeing how this subtle acting goes is part of the fun of that, and it's hard to discuss that portion, but it is amazingly well-acted actors being actors in a performance. That's a... Yeah, it's, it's gotta a, be a fun experience being an actor, playing an actor, performing in something 
again, all those little stacked dolls or, or layers of an onion. Yeah, you've got to memorize your lines, but some of your lines are your character's lines, which your character memorized. And, you're- and you've got to deliver those lines as your character would deliver them as the character he was playing, and then deliver these other set of lines as the same character you're playing, who's now playing a different character, because the first character's dead. It's like, wait a minute, which one am I? (laughs) Or being able to switch between my character playing a character who then, as himself, responds to someone else off mic, that the mics are now picking up us all talking about. It's like, (laughs) "Ah, my brain. There's always a thing about talking productions of productions, but it's it's so well done here. So, our second question for a movie, or for most anything, is revive, reboot, or rest in peace? So that's kind of the thing. You can't really revive this. I mean, I guess, uh, I guess a documentary or a docudrama of the life of Orson Welles would wind up in some ways... By continuing to follow him afterwards, but I, that's the closest yeah. you get. He could have, you know, after the night that panicked America, in the style of after the Thin Man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, what did he move on to next? And hey, uh, an, an Orson Welles uh, biopic would be interesting. There have been a few things uh, like that. There was one, um, oh, I forget the name of it. I'll insert it into show notes, but it was a essentially a docudrama about the production of the movie Citizen Kane. And it was named after the like the soundstage where Citizen Kane was mostly shot, uh, I think. Or no, it was based on the production code number ah. uh, of Citizen Kane. But yeah, so there, Orson Welles is such an interesting character. There are so many stories you can tell about him and about the projects he was involved in. But are they really revivals of... The Night That Panicked America? America? Yeah. Probably not. They just are about the same real person. So yeah, the moment, the moment we got into anything historical, <laughs> this is the problem that yeah. arose. But I'm going to say reboot. Because once I came to look at this and look at my research and say, the narrative of how much the panic actually happened is hard to pin down. It definitely had an impact, but how much of an impact and how much that was exaggerated is unknown. But as this movie ends with, there's a value to talking about that panic, no matter how much emphasized it was, because it becomes a story about the media having to take responsibility for how it presented itself and the people for how quick they listened to it. And where they were getting things off because they had their tensions that they brought to the the radio. And the radio gave them something to apply that to. And it made me think, like, there's some, there's lessons here. There's lessons here about listening to more than one, than one source of knowing where you're getting your media from. There's things for people who create stuff about being clear as to where you're coming from and what you're saying that I all thought was very interesting. And so maybe I'm not doing a great job of being clear here, but I think there was value in telling the story of the story in that sense, because it forces you to talk about stories and about how we respond to them and all of that. So I wanted to say, do this again, because continuing to talk about that was valuable. 
I think I, I'm getting what you mean, and and I like it. My inclination is to say, rest in peace. You know, they made this movie about this event and about this broadcast. We don't. It's it was they did it well, but you're right that looking from different perspectives at story and at storytelling is valuable. And we have a very different perspective, I think, now than we did in 1975. So, and although there are other stories you can talk about, this War of the Worlds broadcast from Orson Welles was especially powerful and especially significant, so it's a good touchstone to go back to. This isn't even the first time that this has been ad- adapted for TV like this. There was another production, The Night America Trembled, which was an episode of Studio One in 1938 that did an entire production of this. 19th, same year as the Orson Welles no, broadcast? No, wait, no, no, no. Wait, when was this? When was this? No, this was 57. Yeah. This is 57, oh, okay. about 38. So, yeah. So, about, about almost 20 years after the broadcast and after World War II. Yeah. And they... then 20 years after that came this movie. And there's like... <laughs> This is a yeah. this is a discussion that keeps happening and it's good to happen because you can't let yourself get wrapped up in listening to one thing and thinking it can panic you and get you all excited about something and if you don't look at everything else and get that perspective you don't know what you're seeing and and that that's always important to say and in the I think it was in the 80s there was a TV movie that was nothing nothing to do with War of the Worlds, except that in the lead up to this TV movie broadcast, a lot of people referenced the War of the Worlds broadcast because it was about domestic terrorists with an atomic uh, bomb. And the presentation of this TV movie was as if it were news broadcasts. Mm-hmm. And I think that was very gimmicky. I don't think it was very good. I think that they were looking for people to talk about this TV TV movie ahead of time, like... This TV movie is going to be really scary. I hope people don't confuse it with a real news broadcast. It was you know, publicity. I don't think it was really had much substance to it. But it shows how people were using the stories about the War of the Worlds broadcast to fuel different kinds of storytelling later on. Absolutely. For better or worse. But, uh, but yeah, I think that there, there's enough new perspective that it would be interesting to get a, another take on this event and this broadcast from 38 and what it meant. And um, I don't know if you could address it in something like that, but one of the differences, I think, is that mass media of this type was still relatively young and people were disposed to believe what was coming out of their radio, like you were saying earlier. Yeah. Today, I think if there really were a an alien invasion... And, you know, cities were getting vaporized and people were hearing about this on the news or, uh, you know, seeing it on cable TV. The vast majority of them would not believe it. They would assume that it wasn't real. No. Yeah. The, and, you know, for better or worse. When, when, when the wave of Twitter updates about an, an earthquake can outspeed the earthquake itself and inform people, it changes how we responded to that. But it still tells you something about how people communicate and what they listen to. Oh, now that would be, I don't know how you would structure it as an art piece, but essentially adapting the H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds story, again, the way that Orson Welles adapted it to radio, adapt it to social media. Yeah. These are events. There are aliens 
landing in Grover's Mill, New Jersey, and and or wherever else, and they're marching across the landscape, and they're they're taking over the Earth, and you see that story the way it is depicted by people's social media posts about what they're seeing in front of them. That would be an interesting, not a reboot or remake of The Night That Panicked America, but it would be an interesting remake or an interesting new adaptation of War of the Worlds. Absolutely. I like that idea. And that's the thing, like, the, the adaptation of the War of the Worlds gives us something to reboot and discuss, <laughs> and the adaptation of The Night That Panicked America is valuable because, just like it's, it's continuing from The Night America Trembled, Telling the story about that radio play, I don't think that anything will get the production side as really <laughs> cool looking as this did. But being able to talk about that is interesting. There's the, all, each of these layers has reboot potential, I think, and that's great. Yeah, that's going to take a while to sort out. Like, you know, what what layer of which part do we want to see remade or rebooted? But um, but yeah, I think the fact that it is such a tough question shows how interesting this sort of storytelling can be. And I think that's uh, about as far as we're going to get sorting this out now. Yeah. In, in many ways, this is a great lead-in to a, a question to all of you as the audience. If, if we have sent something to you and you've responded to it, this is a communication we can have. So message us and talk to us online. We're happy to kind of work as a team to break this down because <laughs> this is a puzzle box more than the two of us can solve on our own. Yeah. Have you heard the Orson Welles broadcast? Have you seen this TV movie movie? Uh, what do you think of the way these pieces fit together and what else might be done or how, what would be your take on the story about this broadcast and this event from the perspective of 2020? I'd love to hear that. And until then, um, I think that's going to be all for us for now. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with, with more tales of media from the, uh, the 20th century. And in the meantime, Ian, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter and on YouTube as Item Crafting and on Twitch as Item Crafting Live. And you can find me on, uh, on Twitter or on Twitch as By Matthew Porter. And you can find me at ByMatthewPorter.com. And you can find the podcast at immproject.com, and there you will find links to all of our past episodes and links to our Patreon. Thank you very much if you can support us there. Uh, links to our shop if you want to buy t-shirts and coffee mugs and notebooks and all kinds of fun stuff there. A link to our Discord, and by the way, if you do support us on Patreon, you get access to some special parts of our Discords, including... Advance notice of things that we are going to cover on the show, which Ian does not necessarily get. Yeah, I, I don't get to access that <laughs> section. So, Oh, and if you want to support us on Patreon at higher levels, you can become a member of the, uh, the IMMP Movie Club, where you will periodically get a DVD, which we, we do not promise will be good, but we do promise will be interesting and will be <laughs> something that we'll talk about on the podcast. And also, it'll be a link to our Twitter. Our Twitter for the podcast is IMMPCast. So thanks very much for, for downloading. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, please come back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>